Let's pray together before we begin. Let's pray. Father God, as we see more of who our Lord Jesus is, his power, his glory, his love and compassion, we pray that you might soften our hearts to, and open our ears and our minds to learn and be taught to be encouraged. And we pray, Lord, that you grow us in our faith, that you might enable me to be strengthened by your spirit, to preach your word in all its truth. And Lord, we pray that by your words today that we would be changed. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Amen. I recently saw a comic with two dogs saying something funny and I thought of my family's two dogs who are on the screen. We have Bagel, our Beagle Cross on the right, and our puppy Chai, a Chihuahua Cross on the left. And as they sat there waiting and wanting waiting for and wanting me to give them something of what I was eating, I imagined older Chai, uh, sorry, older Bagel saying to young Chai on the left, one of their years equals around two of our months. That's why it takes them so long to learn anything, like when we want food. My dogs probably think I am slow when it comes to that. But I think sometimes I am a slow learner. I can be slow to learn that, especially with my family, I need to talk less. I think too often I keep trying to share my advice or opinion when I should listen. But I think I'm not alone in being a slow learner. Many people seem slow to learn that you shouldn't drink, then drive, or slow to learn that the 10 or 12 hours a day that we put into our job won't make us happy, or that my next purchase won't truly satisfy me. Or from our passage today, we're slow to learn and really believe that God loves me when I'm in pain, really know that Christ can help and he does care for me when I'm suffering. In this too, we can struggle to know that. Over the last few weeks in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we've repeatedly read eyewitness testimony of Jesus' power. He's had total authority, hasn't he, over sickness and disease, over nature and the storm, over evil. Last week we saw his authority to forgive sins. And maybe because we're slow learners, Matthew continues. Or maybe it's to drive home to us and reinforce Jesus' power and compassion and help us believe that he now continues with these accounts of what we're going to read, of new, new sight for the blind, new health for the sick, a new speech for the mute, new life for the dead. I hope you won't switch off thinking, yeah, I know all this. I've heard these stories before. I pray that we'll know that we need to hear it again because we forget, especially when life is hard, we doubt. And so let's open our ears, our hearts, our eyes to see, firstly, Jesus' power and compassion. Verse 18, a leader, Mark's gospel, tells us that he's a synagogue ruler named Jairus. He comes to Jesus, he kneels before him and says, my daughter has just died, but come put your hand on her and she will live. Why does Jesus get up and go with him? It's because he's able to do something about it and he's compassionate. He he cares. 
And Jesus is on his way to help this man's daughter when just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years comes up behind him and touches the edge of his cloak. Maybe you or I will get annoyed by interruptions. Phone rings at the wrong time. Interruptions don't annoy Jesus. You see, for him, interruptions are springboards for great words, marvellous miracles which reveal his power, his wisdom, his love. Jesus has true compassion. Back in verse 2, Jesus said to the paralysed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And now he says, verse 22, to this woman, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. The woman endured bleeding, some chronic menstrual disorder, 12 years. And for a Jewish woman, that meant 12 years of being constantly, ceremonially unclean, unable to go into the temple, uh, contaminating everyone and everything she touches. But this woman is so desperate in such distress, she sneaks up to Jesus, wanting to secretly touch the edge of his cloak. And she came to the one person, the one man, who cannot be made unclean by her. You see, as we saw with the leper, Jesus doesn't get unclean. He makes them clean. Jesus notices her. He encourages her. He heals her. In verse 23, when Jesus gets to the ruler's house, he doesn't have time for the noisy pipe players and crowd. You see, back then, even poor families were expected to hire professional musicians for a funeral and at least one mourner who would weep and wail loudly. It was insincere, though. And Jesus says to them, go away. The girl's not dead, but asleep. The crowd laugh at him. The word in the Greek used there describes scornful laughter, when, like when you laugh in someone's face and thinking, oh, you don't be so stupid. Jesus didn't really mean the girl was asleep. He knew she was dead. But just like sleep is temporary, her stage is temporary. Like we wake up from sleep, she will wake up from death. And when he goes in, takes her by the hand, what happens? She wakes up. She got up. She rose from death. Here we see Jesus' powerful touch, his tenderness. It's his first resurrection miracle. He brought someone back from the dead. He has power over death. We need to not be blasé about that. It is huge. And then we see that third healing miracle from verse 27. Two blind men follow him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And there never was there on earth someone with such mercy as this man. Jesus cared. And when they're asking for mercy, they're not just looking for someone to feel sorry for them. They're appealing for him to help their wretched suffering, to do something practically. He touches their eyes. He speaks to them. He restores their sight. So his compassionate touch and his 
and his word have been combined again to bring healing. Why did Jesus so often touch those who he healed? Many of these people, they were undoubtedly unattractive, unclean, unsanitary, unhealthy, unacceptable. He could have just spoken a word, but he chose not to. Because his mission was not actually to eradicate disease. It was to minister to people, some of whom had disease. He wanted people, one by one, to feel and know his love and warmth. And for many, especially those excluded, uh, he communicates his love through touch, as many mums and nurses know. Briefly in verse 32, as they leave the house, a demon-possessed mute man who has an evil spirit stopping him speaking is brought to Jesus. And in our our fourth miracle, Jesus just casts out, drives out, kicks out the demon. uh, And the mute man spoke. It's amazing, incomparable power. And his compassion is also incomparable. Look at verse 36. He has compassion on the harassed and helpless crowds. Crowds. And this word compassion, it describes a a deep emotion of being moved in your guts. It's being stirred down deep inside such that you respond. So the word compassion is saying that you feel something and then you do something to help. The needs of the people around him move Jesus to feel compassion and to heal powerfully. And we've seen in chapter 9, it's one after another. It's bang, 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 isn't it? One healing after another to ram home to us, slow learners, that Jesus is powerful. He really does care. And I ask, are you convinced? When you're in pain, are you convinced? Do you believe Jesus cares for you and He feels compassion for you in your suffering. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5, you have this promise cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cares for you. Yes, he may not end your suffering or your difficulty now. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 came to mind speaking of his thorn in the flesh that wasn't taken away. Christ wants to end it. He will end it. But he may want you to wait. And let's not forget that Jesus himself had to wait. He endured suffering all the way to his death, didn't he? And your Lord Jesus is with you by his Spirit. He's with you to comfort you and sustain you and give you strength to endure. A few years ago at the men's convention, a man named Ben Pakula, he writes music for kids. He performed and he sung this song with these words. Sometimes I feel really sick. My nose runs, my throat aches, my head feels thick. But I know the Lord, he wants me feeling healthy. Some folks say you've just got to pray. Have faith in God and he'll take your problems away. But I know the Lord, 
He says this life will be tough. Some things the Lord will give us, some things he won't. But we know the Lord will do what's best for us. Perfect peace, perfect health, sharing in abundant wealth, no more death and no more sin, no more pain and suffering. Perfect life is found in Christ, though we will have it in the future when Jesus Christ returns. I say amen to that. Waiting is for our good. And I know that we, that you, don't always understand why. But know for sure that Jesus is powerful to help you. If not heal you now, then give you strength to endure it. He cares for you. He will give you strength because he cares for you, child of God. The second point is about believing, belief. He will notice, we'll see again, that faith repeatedly comes before healing and salvation, but not everyone responds to Jesus in faith. Back in verse 18, look back there, the ruler comes to Jesus and what did he say? My daughter's just died, but come put your hand on her and she will live. It's amazing because Jesus likely hadn't raised anyone from the dead at this point. And so Jairus isn't coming to Jesus because he knows that, oh, Jesus raised all these other dead people. He just has complete confidence that Jesus can. Faith is complete confidence in Jesus and his power. As I highlighted back in chapter 8, faith isn't being sure that he will heal me now. It's complete confidence that he can if he wants to. And in verse 21... This poor woman suffering, bleeding for 12 years in embarrassment, shame. She creeps up to behind Jesus. Almost superstitiously, she thinks, if I just touch the, the edge of his cloak, then, then I'll be healed. She didn't know much about the kingdom of God, but she knew enough to come to Jesus. The seed of faith existed in her heart, and that's why Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. And please know that the Greek word used here for healed is also the word for saved. So your your faith has healed you could also equally mean your faith has saved you. Healed you spiritually, shall we say. It's the same word that's used back in chapter 1 and verse 21 when Mary's told you'll give birth to a son You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so this hemorrhaging woman is healed, but but was she also saved? I believe so. That Christ, by her faith in him, healed her body and her relationship with God, healed her, saved her soul, saved her from her suffering and her sin physically and spiritually. Imagine a bucket of water going down into a deep well. Faith is like a bucket that is let down into the fountain of God's grace, without which we could never draw the water of life from the wells of salvation. The wells are deep. In ourselves, we cannot 
reach the water. And like that, faith itself does not save. Your bucket does not save you. It's what gets in the bucket, the water. You see, through faith, the water of life from Christ comes to us. And so without faith, we have no salvation. Through Jesus alone and through faith in him alone do we find forgiveness. You see, the benefits of the kingdom of God, they flow to those who, they come to those who look to Jesus for the solution to their problems. And it's not always experienced now, as Ben Pakula saying, we do often have to wait. But let's not forget, this woman in the story had to wait 12 long years, didn't she? And even the two blind men had to wait. Did you notice that? They kept calling out to Jesus over and over, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus didn't respond immediately to their cries. He tested their faith and their determination. And their determination proved the sincerity of their faith. And that's what 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about too. 1 Peter 1 verse 7. And who is it that they ask for help from? The son of David. That refers back to a promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God said that one of your descendants will rule on the throne forever. So it's a way of speaking about the Messiah, God's promised king. In the Old Testament, do you know that never was there a person healed of blindness? No one was healed of blindness miraculously in the Old Testament. But in Isaiah... It's in the outline, chapter 35 and 42. It promises there, God promises that when he comes, when God comes, and when the Messiah comes, this Messiah, God himself, is going to bring sight to the blind. And so it seems here that these two blind men, they they see who Jesus is better than most. See the irony of that, the blind men know who Jesus is. They see who he really is. And when they persevere and come into Jesus and enter the house, they don't stay outside, they keep going. Enter the house. Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Again, Jesus wants an explicit testimony of faith. Remember, that was from whether from the leper or from the centurion, from the ruler, from these two blind men, with complete confidence They know that Jesus is able to heal their blindness. He touches them, speaks to them, restores their sight. Jesus warns them sternly, seriously, not to tell others, likely to avoid misguided enthusiasm or or people misunderstanding his messiahship, what sort of king he is. But not that they listen to that. And so we've seen individual people respond to Jesus in faith. But what about the onlookers, everyone else? Verse 33, look at that. Jesus heals the demon-possessed mute man and that the crowd, they respond with amazement. But I think it's a bit like when you go to the circus and you see a great stunt or you see a great magical feat. And you might think, wow, how'd they do that? Isn't that amazing? You don't leave the circus a changed person, do you? 
And like that, the crowd of people leave Jesus unchanged, unsaved. And the Pharisees in verse 34, they also don't believe and put their faith in Jesus. In fact, they do the opposite. They claim that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And it's a grievous lie. It's a terrible sin to say that, isn't it? How wrong they are. Jesus isn't aiding Satan by his healings. No, his healings and his preaching, and he will by his dying and his rising, he bruises Satan's head. As Genesis 3.15 says, he will crush Satan's head. So it is possible to see miracle after miracle and explain it as Satan's work. Or as people will say today, a freak of nature. Coincidence. People think, people have said to me, if God just showed me that he was real, then I'd believe. Or if only I'd been there in Jesus' day to see these miracles, then I'd believe. I hope that you're noticing that there were crowds of people there who got amazed but didn't believe. They didn't believe that Jesus was Lord and King and they did not give him their submission, their allegiance, their whole trust. The human heart is capable of profound resistance and hardness and self-deception. No matter how obvious or convincing something is, some people just do not believe. I ask though, do you? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus can save you from your sins? Do you believe that when you die better than Jairus' daughter, that you will be raised to life, never to die again? Do you believe that Jesus will give you eternal life? And if you're sick, do you believe he can heal you if he wishes? Believe he's able to? With compassion he wants to? And if he doesn't yet, it's because he's using it for a greater purpose. God's word says it's for your good. 1 Peter 1, it's for the glory of Jesus, who you will one day see face to face. Will you trust him? That's the question. Jesus' compassion for physical suffering was great, yet his compassion for lost souls was greater. Our final point is to pray. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Remember how Jonah at the end, he preaches to this great city of Nineveh and the whole city repents, turns to God seeking God's mercy. And a lot of little kids' Bibles end the story there. But do you remember what comes in chapter 4? How Jonah left the city angry, so angry that he could die. And what did God say to him? Should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh that has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Morally speaking, it probably means. Should I not be concerned for them? Well, then like that, in Matthew chapter 36, we see God the Son in the flesh, Jesus, when he sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. 
because they were harassed and helpless. Or it can be translated distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus really cares for people because God cares. It's, it's in God's nature to care. And it wasn't just the Jews of Palestine 2,000 years ago who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. People today are too. People around us are trying to find their identity and security and significance in their... So many young people especially trying to find those things in their gender or their sexuality, their LGBTI identity. Others are trying to find their identity in materialism and things you can buy or in things that give pleasure. Or they're finding their identity in their work, their friends, their kids. Millions of people in our country are harassed by many things, helpless to save themselves, helpless when it comes to trying to find their identity outside of their creator God. Many are distressed, downcast, depressed. They are like sheep without a shepherd. In Ezekiel 34 that was read earlier, God promised the time is coming when I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And 600 years later, God did come when Jesus came as the true and good shepherd. People need Jesus to find salvation in him, their hope and identity in him. And that task of millions of people the world over, billions, hearing about him so they can trust in him, that task is so great that he will send out his representatives to accomplish it. And so he says in verse 37, says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is his workers going out to bring in a soul harvest. And so workers need to go out, speak the gospel to everyone, to gather in God's elect, the elect into God, Christ's kingdom, so that many people uh, will actually respond to the gospel of Jesus in faith. These many, many people need to be gathered in, Jesus says. But the, Jesus is saying, what he means by this, these workers, these evangelists and preachers and church planters and everyday disciples, they are few. Those who will go and share the gospel, they are few. And many more workers are needed, especially to reach the unreached peoples of the world. By unreached, I mean people who don't have a Christian living near them or in their family or working with them. There's no church down the street that I can go to especially to them. And so Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest, pray and ask that God will send out workers. And it points to chapter 10, what comes next, though we won't come to that till July. In chapter 10, Jesus will send out the 12 as a foretaste of this. But it's still a call and command for us. So I ask, do you pray this? Do you pray that God will send out the word even means throw out, push out. 
workers into his harvest field? Will you pray that God will send out more workers to speak the gospel to others? Will you pray that? Maybe you could add it to a prayer list and pray that every day, I mean, the same day of the week, that one day of the week every year for the rest of your life. That could be a prayer point for you on Thursdays. Pray for workers for overseas, for universities and towns here, for other language groups, for new suburbs, especially north of us, new suburbs of Melbourne. Also, we can pray regularly for the salvation of a loved one, a neighbour, a friend, a workmate. And we can pray that God will send someone to speak the gospel to them. But when we pray from our hearts, I think our concern cannot stop there. You see, we cannot help but become that person who speaks to them ourselves. You see, I'm convinced that we can't pray for others from our heart, praying earnestly, and yet keep people at arm's length. Prayer will result in a change, our changed heart and us caring. When we sincerely plead with the Lord that he'll send someone to witness to them, we may even place ourselves at his disposal and be that someone, a worker, who goes and talks to them. And so I ask, are we willing to be the answer to our own prayers? Like Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. I think of people like Matt and Kate who've gone to Groot, Northern Australia. I think of friends like Nat and Warwick Shorts going, wanting Fulani, Muslim Fulani people in West Africa to know Jesus too. Maybe God wants you to go overseas. Maybe he wants you to move to another part of Melbourne where there's not many gospel-believing Christians or there's less. Maybe he wants you to go next door. Or even better, maybe invite your neighbour from next door to your home for a meal. And I know that in the providence of God, people in the city and in the suburbs, for someone to come to faith in Jesus and to follow him, that can often take many years. May I say three to seven years for someone to come to trust in Jesus. And that will involve a little question here, a little comment there, and many acts and displays of integrity and love. It's the long game we're after. You see, but let's be convicted that verse 30 about Jesus saying to those two blind men, keep quiet about this, don't tell anyone, that verse, verse 30, does not apply to us. Rather, what Jesus, the mission he leaves his disciples with before his ascension to heaven, that's what applies to us, that we should, because he's the one with all authority, he says, go and make disciples. And we will do that in different ways with our different gifts. I realise that. But the powerful Jesus says, go and speak. People need to hear of the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus to save. I think too often, though, we don't care. Sometimes that that is me too. We don't go out on mission, even a short-term mission. We don't talk to our friend or colleague, neighbour or family member because we're too comfortable. Maybe we're too similar to those who don't know Christ. We're not living a godly life and we know it would be embarrassing to speak to them. 
Or are we too ignorant of the good news to share it naturally? Are we too terrified of what people might say? Or are we too insulated in our Christian ghetto and we only hang out with Christians? Jesus had compassion. Jesus cares. Brothers and sisters, the call is to be like Christ. As I conclude, Matthew has now completed his stunning overview of Jesus' miracles, or some of them. Today we've seen him raise the dead, heal a woman from a chronic hemorrhage, give sight to the blind, enable the dumb to speak. And let's not fail to see that each of these people was in torment. A distraught father, an unclean woman living in misery for 12 years, two men locked in a world of perpetual darkness, and a man in captivity to Satan, unable to speak or cry out for help. And Jesus ends their torment. He has unparalleled authority. He speaks and his broken creation is made right. More than that, he's a man who had compassion, a person whose heart was and is deeply moved by the brokenness of people's lives. And he wants us to put our complete trust in him. Who else is worthy of it? The crowd around the woman, they would not believe and they receive nothing. The professional mourners around the dead girl, they did not believe and they were ejected. The Pharisees did not believe and they were excluded. The response of faith is what Jesus calls for from each one of us. Response of faith. And the the response of prayer for people lost in darkness and sin. Response of prayer. It is also what Jesus wants from us. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you because of the way you revealed your glory, your character, your power, your love in your Son, our Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you live and reign now as the one with all authority. You are compassionate and gracious and we praise you. Lord, sometimes you don't give us what we ask for, even when we ask in faith. I know, you know that can be hard for us. But Father, help us to be patient, to keep trusting you, knowing you're good, you're powerful, and you can work good from suffering and evil. So powerful you can sustain us in our trials. And Lord, we pray too that you'd move us not only to faith, but to prayer. Prayer that you would raise up and cast out many workers into that harvest field in Melbourne, around this country, around the world. People who would go, maybe even us, to tell others about the Jesus who saves. So give us, Lord, faith. Give us prayerfulness. May that we pray this for the glory of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.